What do you think of when you hear the word salesman? My guest today wouldn't be the first person that would come to mind, but yet he is one of the top sales performers in the country in one of the most competitive businesses out there, copiers. We uncover what motivates him and how he's been able to generate 10 times the results of the average professional in his field. You will also learn something interesting about his childhood that he never realized had a big impact on what makes him one of the best. Welcome to Unusually Successful, where you will meet a series of people who have achieved extraordinary results in life and business. Join your host, Sean Dipple, as he looks to learn what made these people unusually successful. Our guest today is Brian Sanders superstar of Sharp Business Systems here in Greenville, South Carolina. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You and I have known each other for right around two years. And something that really struck me is that uh, your performance as a professional in our industry is really outstanding. And not only is it outstanding in a short term, but you've had success for a period of time, which really is kind of the test test of the metal, so to speak. So uh, tell me about your business as it stands today. Yeah. So I'm a, what they call a major account sales rep here in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I handle, uh, actually most of my accounts are not even in Greenville. They're in the Northern part of the state. So the Spartanburg area, um, I do some in the the Midlands, the Columbia area and, um, a little bit in Charleston. So, um, that's a little bit unique in the fact that I kind of have some accounts all across the state. And we've done, um, you know, we've been lucky to have a lot of success with a lot of the different things that Sharp does. You know, we've been able to, obviously copiers and printers are our core, but we've been able to leverage our audiovisual uh, technology and some of the other technologies that we sell. And um, we're on a good run right now. Uh, you know, I had left for uh, a while for about four years, was here four years, left four years, need to see the grass if it was greener on the other side. And then I'm back for three years now. So, so you've been back for three years. Yep. Um, so a total of seven here at Sharp. So I want to, I want to learn all about the history, especially here at Sharp, but also want to make the statement that this subject is very near and dear to my heart because I'm on the development side of the business. We both work here at Sharp Business Systems and it's my job to develop or to attract top talent, to bring them into the organization, to develop them, and then more importantly, to retain them so that they can have careers and perform at a high level. Had uh, some success with that, but that certainly is uh, probably one of the most challenging positions in any sales organization. And so currently, you're on track to have one of the best sales years you've ever had in your 27 year Correct. experience. What would you attribute that to? Because I thought with the coronavirus, uh, nobody can sell and the world's falling apart. Right. Uh, and then out, coming off my best year ever last year, did it just right at 2 million. I, I kind of thought the same thing. And I really would say, you know, your year over year is not actually, doesn't take place in that one, those actual months. So while Corona came around in March, all of the fruits that we've seen and enjoyed had actually all of that work had been done, you know, over the last year, maybe even two years. You know, I generally am working on bigger accounts. And so some of them will take me developing a relationship for maybe a year, um, sometimes two years. So while all the success has come to fruition during COVID, I would think, you know, how that happened was you know, months, maybe years before cultivating those relationships and, you know, building value and credibility with that customer. And it just so happened that it did come to happen, you know, during COVID. But again, all of that work had been done previously. A boss of mine in the past would always debate with me because when I first became a sales manager, he would say, Sean, why do people want to get into outside sales? And I said, for the money. And he said, you're wrong. 
And it used to make me mad because I was very motivated by money. And, mm-hmm. and he said, you're wrong. And I said, okay, Ed, tell me why do people want to get into sales? And he says, for the freedom. And the problem is, is that very few can handle the freedom. Yeah. Well, you know what? I would say I would agree with you both. Um, I am definitely in it for the money. Um, and so that is part of my, my goal is generated by revenue, but my personal goal is based on W2s from, you know, year over year. But what good is it to have freedom if you don't have money to enjoy that freedom? So, uh, I love freedom. I love being able to do things with my family, but that costs money. So I've heard it said before, you know, what's enough. And for me, it's more, unfortunately, um, I am content with, with my life and uh, I try to be, uh, but I am definitely driven by making more money. Um, and I always used to say, if I could just make this amount, I'd be, I'd be okay. And then when I got to that amount, I was like, well, if I can just make and I've always been that way. I kind of made the most money that I ever made last year. Um, by a significant, I mean, I had a pretty significant bump, and I've always done pretty well. And quite frankly, I didn't know that I was going to be able to do that again. Um, and this year, I've already succeeded that, and we're in. Well, I overcame that, and back in July, and and I kind of thought I was going to just kind of plateau off. But then I'm like, you know what? No, I'm going to try to just see how much can I make this year, and if it if it dips down a little bit next year, then so be it. But Let's keep riding that wave. It's one of those things. If you take your foot off the gas, um, I'm always, I've always got this healthy paranoia that what happens if I can't get the car started back again or can't get it going because I'm, it's running pretty good right now. So let's just keep running it. Yeah. Nothing's, you know, let's keep going full steam ahead. And, and that being said, I, I would agree with, you know, what, what your boss said is I do like freedom. I don't get me wrong. I'm not. Um, I'm not here to tell everybody they need to be working 80 hours a week. Um, I enjoy the flexibility that, you know, this job has provided me. Um, I, I like to think that my two boys would agree with that because they've seen some of the, the fruits of that. But that being said, I still have to, I still want to achieve that excellence. I still want to be the, the best. And right now I don't feel like I am the best. And there's probably, I always feel like there's always gonna be somebody better than me. And even if I was somehow they, and we don't have it, but if the copier world said, Hey, you're the best sales rep there is, then I would feel like there'd be something else out there that would motivate me, but I'm not, um, there's a lot of people that are better than me. So I'm just keeping trying to catch up to them. And, um, and that's probably the way I always will be. So really the purpose of this episode is for us to uncover your why, you know, and the how. So maybe we can start off with your childhood. T- tell me about your childhood. I know you were born in Charlotte, but then at an early age, you moved to this area. Yeah. So I think four or five, I, I moved here with my, my mom and dad and my brother. And we've, um, my dad's an engineer. My mom was a teacher. Uh, we lived just a pretty typical middle-class life. Uh, we didn't take a lot of vacations, but we had, you know, we weren't poor. We weren't rich. Um, very comfortable really looking back, it was a great, you know, great life. My parents tried to provide for me, whatever, you know, I wanted to do. I I did like sports. Um, I also like music and they, they, they gave me every opportunity that I needed or wanted. And so, you know, I actually got into, um, right out of high school, actually. Um, in fact, I still remember it vividly the day after I graduated from high school, we had an um, all nighter at uh, the pavilion. It's, you know, just still here in Greenville. It's an ice skating rink. And I stayed up all night, and that next morning at 10 o'clock, I had an interview with Modern Office Machines. They were a Canon dealer. And one of my friends and mentor, he was my piano teacher, actually, and youth group leader, he was selling copiers there. And he said, well, hey, we've got this telemarketing team, and um, I think I can get you a job there. So he set up the interview. I met with uh, the manager and got the job right then and there. And so I started in telemarketing. I was a lead generator for the outside sales reps. And so I would call and get leads for them. And it, it just kind of came naturally. And they started really loving my leads. They knew if they got a lead from me, it was, it was probably going to be a sale. And then I saw these guys making great money. You know, they were, you know, that, not that much older than me. I was 18. They were probably in their mid twenties, maybe early thirties. But I saw them making money and um, eventually that moved into selling, um, you know, small desktop copiers, fax machines over the phone. And I did that all through college. 
and loved it and just um, got really good at it, actually. I mean, I worked part time, but was able to keep up my numbers with the full time people that were there. And I had a lot of great experiences and learned a lot. Um, I think that's, you know, the kind of the why is I was taught really early. You know, I was 18. That was really my first. I had done some construction type jobs with my friend's dad, who was a plumber and a grader during the summers. But that was my really first true job. And I learned so much and I was really impressionable and I had good people around me to teach me like, you know, good habits and sales and, you know, how to, you know, pencil sales, what we call it now. But back then it was just running a calculator really and figuring out how to do all that and just was really lucky and blessed. I think a lot of people don't have that opportunity, but I obviously did and and made the most of it and ended up actually um, going into outside sales before I finished college, which was probably looking back was a mistake. Um, I did end up going back and finishing, but I just, I, you know, I wanted to start making that. I saw these guys making this, all this money and, or at least what seemed like a lot of money back then to me. And I was like, I know I can do it. And yeah, so I started off and kind of got, got a territory in Greenwood and Anderson was my first territory, which is, or, you know, around an hour from, from Greenville. But um, I, I would have taken anything. I just wanted to get out there and start selling. Oh, they threw you threw you out in the woods a little bit, didn't <laughs> they? They sure did. I put 35,000 miles on my car that first year. Oh, so. yeah. I remember those years. So going back to your childhood, who was the most influential person? You, you only have, you just have a brother. Yeah, I have a, he's five years older than me. Okay. He, he wasn't influential at all. <laughs> uh, we didn't get along at all. I, I love him, though. He's a, he's a great guy. But, um, you know, I would say looking back as on a, growing up as a kid i mean my dad is a was a hard worker um he's um we're similar in some ways but he's an engineer he um i'm not sure he could really sell anything but i couldn't do whatever he does i really don't it's um but he uh he's a hard worker and he's um what you see is what you get and i think that's kind of what i've tried to be uh, the best i can be so he was pretty influential. Um, my mom is, is as well. She, I can talk to her about anything um, and still do. I still go over there from time to time during the day and maybe take a bathroom break and we'll sit down and talk to her for a little bit um, about anything. And then I would say the other people that were real influential to me were my first piano teacher, still remember her. And then the guy that I mentioned before, who was my youth group leader, and he taught me piano in high school, and we're still friends today, and he's still in sales today. And we've had some similar journey as far as life goes. And so, you know, I looked up to him a lot and still do. Um, You know, if a difficult time comes around, not sure about something, he's someone I can text or call anytime and ask him whatever I need to. And He's probably already been there, done that. He's he's about you know seven or eight years older than I am. So, are you still a musician? I do a little bit, um, not as much anymore. So, I, I play the keys. I don't really sing. Trying to get my younger son. He's got that interest and talent. So, right now, I'm trying to kind of the last thing I've done um, in public actually was I played keys for him while he sang at a wedding. So. You know, and I've helped him with some talent shows and stuff like that. But so, that made, made you feel good, didn't it? Yeah, it was kind of cool. It's cool. He's I'm glad he's trying to take up and, you know, and, and has that desire to be in music. My older son plays the drums, which I don't know how where he got that from, because I have no idea how he does all that. But um, so he's he likes music, too. So I don't even know if I'd call myself a musician, but um, I do play the keys. And um, but I don't play um, in it, do any gigs or play any bands right now. So. What I hear you say is that you pretty much had a just a typical Southern childhood. Mom and dad were there. What I don't hear, it's kind of interesting that you didn't run out and get a job when you were 15 years old, you know, get a work permit and then, you know, get a job and work all the way through high school. But it was interesting that the day after you graduated high school, you were interested in getting a job. Where did that come from? Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, I, I had jobs. I worked in the summer just, um, and I knew I didn't want to do that because it was, I would come home totally head to toe in mud, you know, because I was, you know, either under a house helping a plumber or we were grading. So it was all, we were working in the dirt and I knew I didn't want to do that. So, and I did have one a quick stint at a, a place called JB White's. I was selling shoes um, and I had just started that job and I had told, um, my buddy who got me the job was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to do this. This kind of stinks. Um, so I'd done that for maybe a month or two when, when this opportunity came up. So, ah. so what did you study in school in college? 
just business marketing. Yeah, I wouldn't say <laughs> I learned more, obviously, doing and I'm definitely a proponent of college. I, my son's a senior and and um, hopefully he'll be starting school next year. But I learned a whole lot more, obviously, being at at the time, modern office machines, getting real life learning. Um, and, and part of that was my fault. I wasn't a great student and um, was, quite frankly, distracted because I was making really good money as a college student. And um, but, yeah, I did study marketing there. And you played sports in school? I did. I played. Um, I played basketball. It was really my main sport. I mean, I played. A, I played a little bit. And the school I went to was small, and we just had intramural, um, so I could play pretty much anything. But really, basketball was what I was excelled the most at, and um, and kept playing it even after you know college until I got a little bit older. Even now, I still try to play with my boys, but they're both bigger, faster, and stronger than me. So um, <laughs> I play a little bit less because, again, I still like to win, and I don't think I can win very much with them anymore. Sounds like you a good opportunity to get hurt. <laughs> and that's true, too. Try no, to keep not up the way, with if them. If you saw me the way I play, <laughs> I'm not getting hurt. I'm too. I'm not. I'm going to keep it slow so I don't get hurt. You invite your brother over, you can beat up on him. <laughs> yeah, 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 probably could, yeah. So from a business standpoint, you, you get out of high school, you get a job right out of high school, you go into college. Were you able to sell copiers full time while you were going to college or did they work with you on your schedule? They worked with me. They were great. Um, they, they took me whenever they could get me. So, and I gave them a lot. I was, I tried to, I was there probably more than I should. Yeah. So I, I guess it was kind of full time in the summers. Um, but it was all like, again, segment one, which is those, de- the desktop copiers and then fax machines that was back when um, this is how old i am it was back when um, thermal fax machines were moving to the laser and so again you could easily paper or pencil sell how that would and so i got really good at that now it's i sold a ton of fax machines you know i think my i, I sold over 20 fax machines one month i remember still remember it because i canon gave me a mont blanc pen and that was just a huge deal as a oh, yeah. you know a 20 year old i guess i was 19 or 20 and got this couple hundred dollar Mont Blanc pen. I mean, I was living large as a college student. For oh, sure. yeah. <laughs> Mont Blanc pens. Those are things that you keep, you know, oh, for yeah. a long time. And oh, yeah. they, they usually mean something. They do. You know, it's yeah, not yeah, just cool. an expensive pen. It's interesting to me the difference between most of the people that I interview. Most people go to college and some work, but very few do during college because they feel like college is a right. It's something that, you know, is given you know, those kinds of things, or they go out and they get a bunch of student loans and then they get out of college with a business degree and they're $60,000 in debt. I imagine that didn't apply to you. Was that the strategy? No, for me, I was in a totally different situation. One, my, um, my parents were gracious enough and gave me a a full ride. So I didn't have, I didn't have to worry about school. In fact, I, I never, and this is probably, I think my parents would agree not a good strategy, but I didn't even know how much school cost. Um, I never saw the bill. Um, again, doing going backwards, if we could, I think both my parents and I would definitely do it different. I'm certainly doing it different with my kid. So yeah, I just, um, I really enjoyed the job and I, I was good at it. It kind of fueled that competitive fire. I didn't enjoy school. So I think that's where that was a little bit different for me. When did you start school? Uh, college out of did you wait a couple of years? No, or? I went right out of. I mean, right yeah, I, I worked that summer, and and when the fall came, I, I even though school. you kind of acknowledged I'm not great at school. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it. Um, it was just um, all my friends went. We all went to the same school, and it was just kind of what you did. And um, I really didn't enjoy it. Um, I was playing ball um, with you know with there, so it was was okay, but. I actually stopped playing basketball after my sophomore year because I was just I really was more in tune with my job than schools. But school was like kind of a necessary evil. I felt my parents really you know wanted me to finish and wanted me to to do that. And and everybody else around me was going to school. And all the all the guys that I looked up to that were outside sales reps, they had all graduated from college. So I felt like it was something I needed to get done. And plus the company that I worked for they wanted me to finish too. They were, um, while they liked having me there, they, they wanted me to be in school and they wanted me to finish. And they, they didn't want to put me in an outside sales position until they knew I was right at finishing. It's just, it's just, it's fascinating to me that your parents paid for college and yet you worked all the way through college. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. um, I've never even thought of that. I mean, something just, I don't know. It's just, maybe it's just something you were born with. I guess. Um, Maybe so. 
So if we could develop a test that could measure what you just described in applicants, I would be a multi-billionaire because <laughs> yeah. every company in the world would want that test because the thing we cannot judge, and we do all sorts of personality profile, you know, are you a dominant person or influencer or whatever, we do disc testing and, and everything else. But what it doesn't ever pick up on, it cannot measure is what's in your heart. And we know that motivation comes from your heart. Inspiration comes from your heart. And that's what gets you up in the morning and gets you to work. It also gets you to do things when you think no one's looking, you know, that character right. issue. And uh, that's really interesting that you did that and that you di didn't really notice it until this conversation. Absolutely. I think you'll find a lot of the things that I have done that have made me successful. I don't even know that I've been intentional about it until I've maybe taken a class or listened to a podcast or watched a video and I'm like, oh, I do that. So, and that actually does help you be better when you find out, oh, that works. I need to be attentive. I do that, but now let me be intentional about it. Uh, so I, I have discovered that over the years. So talk to me about your wife, Catherine. Right. How'd you meet her? We met, uh, actually, we went to the same school and I, I had another semester to go, but was taking summer school. She had already graduated, but had one class to finish in summer school. So we met there because we had a group of friends um, that we had in common. And so that summer we started hanging out and just as friends. And then it kind of blossomed into, I guess, a, what we call a romance. And um, we've been married 21 years. So, Wow. Uh, so, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I find that that's becoming more of something to be, as you get... Uh, as you get more and more years, it's something more and more to be proud of. Um, it's not been easy. We've had challenges just like everybody else does, and we have to work at it. Uh, most of the, all of those really contributed to me, but um, she's great. She's um, she's very patient. She's very kind. Um, all the things that I'm not, she's definitely is. I'm not kind. I'm not patient. <laughs> um, but she's also not competitive either. So, right, <laughs> so right. we definitely balance each other out well. So you complement one another very I think well. So. Yeah. And so you you have a child that's 18, right, right, Max? He's a senior at Wade Hampton High School here in Greenville. And then Trevor is getting ready to turn 16 in November, and he's a sophomore. Similar in, uh, would you say that their family life is similar to the way you grew up? I would say so. Um, I would like to think it's better in some regards. I mean, my dad, as great as he was, he we didn't go on vacations because he always was worried and in, in the engineering field there's there's always a worry that there's not gonna be work so you're gonna get laid off so he would always store up his vacation time so I think we went on like three vacations growing up and so um, you know we've always tried to take a vacation I think we've taken one almost every year if not multiple so um, but for the most part yeah they they've had pretty much similar upbringing um, they're close with my my parents and both their grandparents live here in town so that's a little different. I, it was really just us four growing up. I mean, I didn't really have a relationship with any of my grandparents or cousins or uncles. And, and my boys get to experience that, which is cool. I'm, I'm jealous for them. I tell them that all the time. But, um, but yeah, for the most part, yeah, I think they've had a similar upbringing. I think it's interesting how you described why you didn't go on vacations. You said that uh, in the engineering field, you know, dad didn't want to go on vacation because he wasn't sure from one project to the next. Right. And how you described what drives you, what keeps you going, and how you handle the freedom was very similar. Yeah, I haven't thought of that. Yeah, I guess um, maybe that's something that is just kind of innately there. Although I feel like, you know, we do go on vacations, um, but maybe it's that drive that I'm that paranoia that we did talk about that right. I am always concerned about is somebody is the competition going to get in there or, you know, I'm going to lose this deal. And, and I certainly do lose deals from time to time, but, um, maybe it's very similar, just a little different perspective there. Yeah. When you think about, uh, what drives you, because especially in these times of, of COVID and I don't want to talk a lot about COVID just because everybody talks about it and it's always an excuse for one thing or another. Because failure is not an option, right? And life throws crazy things at us all the time. But when we think about the amount of freedom that we have in doing what we do, you have to have something 
that drives you, you know, in, in our business, a bad word is micromanaging and right. everybody will describe a boss that they've had in the past that they hated as a micromanager. Problem is, is that sometimes some of us need micromanagement. When I first got started, that was, I had a manager that I guess you would say micromanaged. I don't know that I really felt like he did because I was so new, but he was teaching me good habits. He was teaching me that when I went in my territory, I needed to know that territory intimately. So we drive by somewhere. He wanted to know when that lease was up, what kind of machine did they have in there? And if we didn't know, we stopped, we went in, we asked and we, and then now we know, and we kept track of that. And, and he made sure I knew the equipment. I remember I was just telling a friend this the other day. I remember he had me in the office. It was still dark. It was probably six, six thirty in the morning. And I had to do a demo on the copier and I had to know everything about that copier. And I remember just going through the motions and he stopped me. He jumped up on the chair and he's like, you got to get excited. And it was just those type things. I still remember to this day you know, the discipline, the you know, knowing what you're selling, being confident that just builds confidence in, in yourself. And then that will the customer will be confident in you because you know what you're talking about. And so even to this day, I'm still I still want to know about the machines and, and know about the technology as much as I can. Even though we've got a great team that knows a lot of that stuff, I still think the customers appreciate when you are kind of that knowledge level expert and still be able to defer when you get something that gets a little bit out of your wheelhouse. Uh, but yeah, I think those habits were created early on and I had the luxury of, of having that great organization to be kind of started out in that taught me a lot of that stuff that I keep, I still use today. Yeah. Cause the, the definition of a professional is to be an expert in one's given field. And so I can't tell you how many people that I've worked with and interacted with throughout the years, just like you have, who call themselves a professional then you put them up in front of the machine and they're like, well, they don't know the equipment or they don't know the competition. They haven't done their homework. And a lot of it will be, well, I haven't been trained on that. You know, this, this is the classic excuse of everyone wants to blame training when they don't know how to do something. But those that are successful, usually in life or in anything, they have initiative. They take it upon themselves to do the things that nobody had to tell them to do. Right. You mentioned something about excuse too. one of the other things that I heard this. I, I love sports and it was a coach and his name escapes me right now. He's the coach of um, Arizona State was at the Jets. Um, the name escapes me, but it's not important. But he said he would tell his players, you know, ninety nine point nine percent of excuses are usually true, but one hundred percent of them are not acceptable here. And I tell my boys that I like and, it. I, and I and I try to I try to feel that way too because there always is going to be excuse and we've had plenty of them this year but move past it you know push forward don't use that um find a way find another way because there usually is yeah I, i totally agree let's take a quick break for an ad from this episode's sponsor curb appeals solutions curb appeals solutions is the upstate's highest rated exterior cleaning company Their low-pressure cleaning method will safely and effectively bring back the beauty of your home or office, giving you amazing curb appeal. Brian and his team are generously offering up to 20% off their services for all unusually successful podcast listeners. Visit CurbAppealGreenville.com or call 864-214-4959 today. So what would you say has been the biggest challenge in your life professionally or personally? I would say, you know, I had, you know, early on, you know, for the first half of my career, I was pretty successful and, and by golly, I would tell you, and I knew it. And so I think one of my biggest challenge is, has been, you know, being humble. And, um, I went through a stretch where I didn't have so much success and definitely was humbled and I think coming out of that into this, like the second half of my career, I've really put a value on um, trying to be humble. It's, um, you know, it's like I'm real proud of my humility right now, but um, <laughs> uh, it's something I try to teach my boys. I try to teach myself. I feel like and it can be difficult when you are being successful to sometimes you got to remind yourself it's not all about me. Um, my success has come. Um, because uh, I work at a great organization, I have a, you know, a great family that supports me. Um, and even though I might be the one that's reaping the benefits of that success, 
um, and you know I'm out in front. It's it's not all about me. And I think at one point in my career, it was definitely all about me. And anybody that knew me would be like, oh yeah, he's he's good, but he's. I mean, they would say it. I hate even to say it, but they would say he's cocky. And I think it's okay to be confident, but when you there's there's just a fine line of being confident in what you do and being cocky, and um, it's just something that I feel like that I've tried. I, I'm still haven't mastered. I know um, at times I I know I probably am perceived as being cocky. Part of that too is um, you know you talk about the test. I am more introverted. I mean, in fact, every boss that I've ever done that test for, they come like, oh Brian, you're you're an introvert. We usually don't hire introverts, but but I am. So sometimes I come across, you know, um, a little differently to others, but, uh, but yeah, that's what I would say. That's been my biggest challenge, I think, is making sure that I'm, you know, staying humble and not, you know, taking everything on myself and, and projecting that I'm the one that's being successful. I mean, the success I've had here at Sharp is certainly most of it is probably due to, the team that we have around us. So we've got a great team and all I'm really doing is going out and evangelizing how we are so much better than the competition and, and using facts. And, uh, so that helps me, uh, I, I think it helps me stay humble. Um, again, I, I'm not, I haven't mastered it yet. Probably never will. Well, uh, there's a book that was written. I'm not sure who wrote it, but the title is the extroverted introvert. And it's, it's about people like you just described. Obviously, you have to turn on that the extrovert in you, but naturally, you're just an introvert. Some of the most successful sales reps that I've coached have been extroverted introverts. They're not the life of the party. Those are usually the ones that are most undisciplined. They sell on personality and they forget the process. They forget the details. And so they have a short stint in sales because everybody likes them because they're naturally the life of the party, but they lack the discipline in order to make this a real career. Right. And customers, while customers want to like somebody, they want to trust somebody. Yeah. And I think a lot of times I've seen those reps before. Um, I've seen them come and go. And while I might not have all the energy or the charisma that they do. I think customers just like that. He's consistent. He, he does what he says he's going to do when he says he's going to do it. You know, if I am on time, I do, you know, I think it's funny. I'll have, I've got a couple of customers. If I've got a meeting at 10 o'clock, they'll come strolling down about, you know, two or three minutes before 10, cause they know I'm going to be there. You know, they don't even wait till the receptionist. Call. I mean, cause I'm just, you know, it's just being consistent at, um, just being true to who you are. I think that kind of goes back to, you know, just thinking through some of the conversations we've already had with my dad. I mean, he's, he is what, he is what he is. You know, he, he's the same guy at work, at church, at home, you know, and if he, he'll tell you like it is, whether you like it or not. And, and, you know, good or bad, that's kind of him. And I guess, um, I'm, I got a little bit of that in me as well. Well, it sounds like it's paid off. I think so. I, I, I mean, at times probably maybe not, but I've learned how to, um, you know, my dad's older, so he, he'll, he, he, I don't know that he has the same filter that I might have in front of a customer, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, you, you still have to be professional, but I do, I think the customers that have been loyal to me the, or how I've built that loyalty, it's just, like I said, just being true and they know what I'm going to tell them. You know, that was one of these mentioned too. one of the lessons. I just thought of this. I, I learned a lesson one time I, we had this um, I won't get into all the details, but basically there was a program that we had that turned into being something that wasn't the best thing for the customer. And um, when I was doing this program, I had all the best, you know, intentions for the customer, but it turned out to something that wasn't in their best interest because we the, the leasing company got bought. And so I remember my gut was saying, you know, I just need to come in and tell them straight up I screwed up. The program wasn't what I thought it was or the program has actually changed now. And I just didn't I didn't do a good job. And I remember my boss at the time, he was a new uh, a new boss of mine. He's like, no, we can't tell him that that could that could cause too many issues. And I was like, well, I think it, I think it'll be okay. I think I can just explain. I made a mistake. The program used to could work that way. It can't work that way now. So let's figure something out. And, um, and he didn't want to do that. So I went in and we, I don't even remember exactly what we told him, but it obviously wasn't exactly what I wanted. And I, 
I remember they, they asked me not to come in that account anymore. And I couldn't really blame them because I really wasn't quite honest with them, truly honest. And I remember from that, that point on, I was like, you know what? I'm always just going to tell the truth to the customer no matter what. And my gut told me I should have done that. And I kind of trusted that, oh, it'll work out if we kind of just gloss over it. And customers saw right through it. And they asked me not to be the rep anymore and, and never have sold anything to them. And never, never been back in there since. Hard lesson learned, but uh, definitely a lesson that you remember it like, I remember like it, yesterday, yeah. right? Yeah. It still stings a little bit, but you've got to have, you've got to, when, you know, when we talked about doing this and I was reading through some of the things preparing, I was starting to think through some of those lessons and it's, it's good to remember those. So what kind of advice do you give people that are getting into this business? Because our business has changed, as you know. I mean, right. interestingly enough, my first job was at White Business Machines in Charlotte, North Carolina, selling plain paper fax machines. So you and I had a very similar <laughs> right. uh, beginning in this business. But now it involves so much more, so many other technologies. It's not just about copiers and putting ink on paper or toner on paper anymore. I would say the first thing I would tell them is buckle up and be patient for the first two years. Work hard, work smart, and don't look at me or what you see your other peers, what you appear, what it appears that we're doing and think that you can do that right now. Cause I think that that's the trap is you get a new rep that comes in and they see a glimpse of some of that freedom that we talked about. And I would say for the first year or two, you don't have that freedom. You're not going to have that freedom. And if you feel like you have it, then you, you, you need to keep pushing through because while there is an opportunity to have some of that freedom, you really have to work hard and you're not going to, you might have some early success because you inherited a good territory possibly, but you've got to keep just working as much as you can. So that means maybe it seems like a lot of people on a Friday afternoon are, are cutting off early. Push through and find something to do. Make that extra phone call. Take the time to go and get in front of a machine and learn it or go learn that new technology. I would also tell them this is there are a lot of different things. You know, when I started, I needed to learn a copier and I needed to learn a fax machine. Both of those real easy to learn, and anybody with a, a little bit of common sense and intelligence can learn that within a week easily, if not less. So I would say learn the copier, because once you learn one, you kind of know them all. So I would say spend the week, pull out the manual, read it, know it, become an expert at it. It won't take you hard. And then all the other stuff, take your time to learn it. Leverage the specialist that you have, because most places are going to have a specialist for the audiovisual, the you know managed network service and get with those people and start picking their brain. And then I guess lastly, I would say is, and I still try to do this is find someone that that's better than you. And when you're new, when you look at the stack rankings, probably much, that's pretty much everybody, right. That's been here longer than you and ask them questions and learn from them. That's the other good, great thing that we had when I started out in the business, we had kind of like an all-star team and those guys were all four or five years ahead of me. And they were all, we were all friends. We played basketball, some of us together. Some of us were just, we were all, had, we had a good camaraderie in the office. And so I could learn from them. We all sat together. I could hear them on the phone. I could ask them questions. And I just would just pick at them, you know, little things and pick up stuff here and there. And all those little things, and this is the other thing that one of my other mantras is little things make a big difference, whether no matter what you're doing, if it's the way you're managing an account, the way you're talking to a customer, all those little things, they, they make a big difference. Knowing their name, remembering what they told you the last time about their family or their vacation, remembering what y'all talked about and doing what you said, all the little, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a little. And so even I would say the same thing with your peers, ask them a question. It might be a little thing, but all those things will eventually add up and make a big difference. So what I hear you saying is take ownership of their own professionalism, become an expert. Exactly. Learn the equipment, learn the technology, ask for help, lean on people that don't reinvent the wheel, lean on people that are already doing what you want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the great thing. Um, at least here at Sharp, we've got a great team. We've got a kind of a great mix. We got some young guys and girls, and then we've got a lot of veterans. 
And if you don't have that at your organization, there there's veterans in sales wherever you live, wherever you're doing. It doesn't necessarily have to be at your company. Find them and take them to lunch. You know, I had a guy that doesn't work here. He took me to lunch the other day. Um, actually, I think I ended up paying for it. I'm not sure how that happened. And he just picked my brain about some things, um, asked for a couple of contacts, you know, little thing. But, you know, he called me up this week and said, hey, I got into some accounts. You know, he's he's finding somebody that's been doing this a lot longer than him and getting some ideas. Um, and I think that's, a you know, a great trait to have. Don't be afraid to ask. And and don't think you know it all because I don't. I mean, I am. I ask, you know, my boss, who's one of my mentors, I ask him about almost everything that I do. You know, I go and pitch something to him. You know, we were talking before about, you know, having somebody that always says yes isn't necessarily a good thing. And and sometimes, so it's always good to go and, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And sometimes it's not exactly, well, what about, did you think, oh, I didn't think about that. Or, you know, so always have somebody there that you can bounce things off of. Because it's always better to kind of talk through it with somebody else the first time instead of doing it right in front of the customer. So then you're prepared. So you've got some, or if they say this, I can go here. If they say this, I can go there. So you're always kind of know what to expect. You're always thinking ahead. You know, everything that you just listed out are things that no one teaches in a new sales rep training class. You know, when you think about find a mentor, find somebody who's already successful, we teach maybe lean on the specialist and those kinds of things. We always want to teach uh, speeds and feeds and knowing the equipment or learn a, a selling method like spin selling or something like that. But the most successful folks that I have seen and coached and mentored do what you're talking about. They're finding other successful people and kind of hitching their wagon to theirs. Finding it not even even outside of the business, finding a strategic alliance, find someone who can help you get into the door Instead of trying to come up with your own relationships, just find someone who has a relationship and an account that you want to get instead of reinventing the wheel. That's strategic thinking as opposed to tactical thinking. I think that's another thing, you know, that being humble back in the first half of my career, I would never have asked somebody to work on an account with me. But here in the last half, I've had a lot of success with partnering up with another rep and and we split a deal. But it's been very lucrative for both of us. I've done that actually a lot, probably in the last six or seven years, you know, of being okay with, hey, I don't need all the spotlight. I'll share it and let's go win, you know, because again, that's that's the other big thing. I think I've hopefully mentioned it before is I love to win. I hate to lose. That's what drives me is winning. Um, that's why I like teams that win. You know, a lot of people don't, but you know, I love the Patriots because they win. Mm, that's a tough one. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I love the Warriors because they were winning, and I think they're going to go back to winning next year. I love a winner, and I want to be a winner. I think that's really sound advice. Uh, you said a lot of things that uh, I think will resonate with a lot of people. The last question that I have is, what is your why? I mean, you're a talented guy smart, came from a good background. Why do this? You know, I think I could give you some really amazing answer, but I think the honest thing is I kind of got lucky. I had a friend that was in the business and I kind of stumbled into it and it just clicked with me. I left the business, this industry, I was still in sales. I left, I was, I was doing great. Um, at sharp. In fact, I think I was eighth in the country and I went into my boss and said, I'm leaving. And I wanted to go to what I thought was a sexier type sale. Um, it was still selling technology, but the dollar volumes were a lot higher. And I did it and I had some success there. But really, um, and I, I've said it before, I just toners in my blood. You know, I just really enjoyed the business. Um, I think part of it is the people that we have here. I mean, some of the people that I work with now worked with me when I was 18, and they still work with me now. They're our account coordinator. So they've literally seen me grow up. They have they saw me like 50 pounds ago, you know, <laughs> um, you know with, with no girlfriend, no, no wife, no kids. And they've, they've seen all that. And so we've got a great culture here. You know, my why, the answer, you know, my why is I just, I think I kind of got lucky. And it does feed that competitive fire that I've always had. I've always just been really competitive and wanted to win. And this is a great career to, cause you get paid on winning. You don't get paid to lose. And so that's what I like about it. You know, you could go into a deal and there's 10 other people that can do the same thing, maybe 15, 20, maybe depending on 
what you're doing and what you're competing at. So um, it keeps you on your toes. And the great thing about Sharp is we've, you know, diversified. It's not just copiers. When I left seven years ago, I mean, we really were just copiers, printers, maybe a sliver of AV, nothing really like we do today. And over the last seven years, Sharp's really done a great job of bringing more and more and more. So if someone doesn't need a copy or printer, that's okay. We've got plenty of other, you know, tools that we can help them out with and technology that we can help change and help their business and, and help win. So another point that I wanted to explore with you is you operate in a kind of a higher stakes game than the average down the street copier guy. What's the largest deal you've ever worked on? I've done a couple of million, right at a million dollars. So I think 1.1 million. Um, I've done a few of those, actually two or three of those. Have you won every one of them? I have. And I would say that's just because of the team. I mean, again, I I would love to say it was because of me, but you don't win a big deal by yourself. A company that's making that big of a a million dollar investment, they're going to want more than just me. They're going to want to see what's behind me and what what I am representing. Whatever it is you're selling, that piece of hardware or software, it does the same thing for the most part that the competition's doing. I mean, a Canon copier, a Xerox copier, they're putting black stuff on a white piece of paper for the most part. But they're really buying from the organization, or at least that's how I try to sell it, is you're buying from what's behind that copier. Because they can get that technology anywhere. So, yeah, these big deals, you know, and I will say, I mean, the the stakes are higher because, you know, it's harder to have four or five million dollar deals if you lose one. But I would also tell the up and down the street rep, you know, you might not have a million dollar deal at stake, but you still have the same process that you need to try to do. And it might just be on an abbreviated scale, but you're still wanting to sell those same points, basically, that. You know, we're different. Here's why we're different. And just keeping. And the other thing that I will tell you, one maybe little trick of the trade is, and you you alluded to it earlier about knowing the competition, is if you can know what your competition is going to say or do and inform your customer in a way that's not putting down that other competitor, but just let them know the facts of what they do or are going to do. And then when that customer comes and demonstrates that or communicates that it builds a massive amount of credibility for you. I can imagine. You definitely have to be careful that you're not talking down against the competition. Just state the facts and do it in a way. So when they do hear that, they're like, that's exactly what Brian said. And I feel like that's another thing that doesn't matter if it's a million dollar deal or a $10,000 deal. How many times does your book of business or the average deal that you work on come down to price? A lot of buyers will say, oh, we're interested in quality. We want to buy from the best company. But and then someone's $7 cheaper than you. And they go, oh, I'm sorry, but their bid was cheaper than you. I remember um, a long time ago, I'm going to answer a question, but I remember one of my managers saying, it's never about price. And I remember it irritating me. I was a younger rep and I was like, Ugh, sometimes it is about price. I will say this. There are customers that are going to purchase because somebody's the lowest price. And I have customers like that. And I think what he meant and what he didn't articulate is if you've done all the right steps and you've built the right relationship, it might be all about price, but that customer is going to come and tell you and give you the opportunity to get to that price. And I've had that. I think that I don't know that really, I think now looking back, being much older, much wiser, in theory, he is kind of right. It's not about price. Now, in reality, a rep could come and say, I lost that deal because that customer was 10% lower than me. And that would be true. But you probably lost it because you didn't have the chance to be 10% lower because I've had had customers that have opened up a spreadsheet and I've looked on their screen and say, because they, they wanted to be with me, but they couldn't. And most, and I have yet to have a time where I've come back to, to the office and said, here's what we've got to do to win this deal that we haven't been able to work it out. 
I'm sure it will happen, and I'm sure it has happened, and I'm not saying if it has happened to you or a bad rep because there's always a situation where there's someone to be out there that's going to lose money to get a deal. But I don't think those are typical. I think that's more the exception than the rule. Yeah, you're going to lose 100% of the deals that you're not really involved in. And that's basically what you're saying. When you have a relationship and the customer wants to do business with you, then they're going to give you all the tools to, in order for you to make that happen. And like you said, I mean, we work for an organization. We pretty much have a, we're not going to lose type of mentality and policy. So that puts you in the driver's seat. But how many times have reps lost a deal and then blamed price? Cause I kind of agree with uh, your old manager who said it's never about price. I firmly agree with that. I tell my reps that, but it really coincides with what you just said. It's not ever about price. It's about value for the price. And people are not willing to pay more for what they feel the value is worth. Right. Now, it's, it, it is a is a true thing. But when you're a, a new rep and you're out there grinding, yeah, you don't want to hear somebody say, it's not about price. Yeah, there was a theory behind that. Right. He just didn't exactly. go into that. He didn't yeah. articulate it. Because so. we've always had customers. I mean... Think about the way we buy things in our own personal lives. We don't go drive the absolute cheapest car that's on on the the lot or manufactured in the United States. You know, remember the Yugo? Oh yeah, that was a cheap car, man. I think you could buy it for like thirty nine ninety five, brand new. Not everybody in the country bought a Yugo, right. even though it was the cheapest car on the road. Some people drive BMWs, some drive Hondas, some drive Chevys, and I guarantee you, they drive those cars because they feel the value is there, that it warrants the price. Right. I would agree with that. We were on a call not too long ago. I told some other reps, it's like, your customer wants the best they can get for the best value. If you can go get a, and I use the example, if you can go get an Audi and it's not that much more than a Volkswagen, even though they're basically the same thing, you're going to go with the Audi. It's better. It's got more features. It's more luxurious, probably a better service department. That's the way I think all of us are kind of wired. Not not all of us, but most of us. And and customers are the same way. Um, we just got to keep that in mind and and hopefully build that relationship. We have to where we can get that opportunity. The only last thing I would want to say is if you're not watching The Office and learning from Michael Scott, you know you need to you need to put that on your to do list. Put I, that on the binge list. Yes, yeah. that is something that. Uh, is fun and there's a lot of truth to some of the stuff that uh, that he says or behind what he says. You got to kind of read between the lines, but I do keep a steady diet of the office going to to Good you know, advice. Keep, keep things um, humorous and keep them on the light side. Great advice. Well, Brian Sanders, thank you so much. It's been an honor to uh, to hang out with you for this hour and to learn about uh, your success in the business. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. For that. I mean, I know we realize it's it's uh, due to a lot of hard work. So appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you want to hear more conversations like this one, follow us on social media and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening. Unusually Successful is hosted by Sean Dipple and produced by Dan Johnson. Our show is sponsored by and recorded at Sharp Business Systems of South Carolina. Voice acting by Becca Kaser and music by Finding Freedom. <laughs>